Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host as always, and today I'm very happy to be talking to Mike. It feels like I haven't spoken to Mike for a while. It's been a while since we've done a QA, and a and I'm really looking forward to digging into this one. So I'm going to chuck questions right at him because we only have 45 minutes and we're going to make the most out of Mike's time. Uh, so the first question that we have, it's a difficult name to say because it's not a real name. It's C-A-O-I-M-H-E. Um, and she has asked... I know this is a she because she's part of our, our members site community and she has asked, I'd love to get your opinion on how to prepare for surgery. And she's given some context here. She said the surgery is going to be roughly 10 weeks, uh, in t- 10 weeks, sorry. And I'm currently in the second meso following a mini cut. My health is good apart from the labral separations in both hips. I'll have surgery on the right hip first and then three months later, I'll have it on the left I originally planned on staying in a surplus and trying to build as much muscle as possible, but given that I'll be recovering for at least six months from the first operation, I'm wondering if I should try and get leaner first. Yeah, the advantage of a surplus would be to have some more muscle um, around the area in general, which is good. Um, The advantage of getting leaner first would be that Within a certain normal range, folks that are leaner tend to uh, have better health and recover better from surgery. Um, but I imagine this person is into fitness already, and for them, leaner probably doesn't mean healthier anymore. It doesn't mean less healthy, but not more. And a fat loss phase actually does some quite some bit of fatigue. So I would say for a surgery that's relatively minor, uh, you know, getting lean before is fine. Uh, hip labor repair. Yeah, you know, I would I would accumulate a whole lot of fatigue before that, and because the surgeries require lots of off time afterwards, um, where probably upper body training can resume relatively soon, but I'm not sure about uh, well, lower body is probably a long ways off, which is okay. Um, I would say that a slight surplus um, and is totally fine, but I wouldn't get super uh, heavy uh, relative to normal. Slight surplus or maintenance would be my best recommendation. Train nice and hard, uh, but not too hard because you don't want to be like functionally overreached when you get ready for surgery. And I would say a week before surgery is when you should deload so that you can be at your best health right when the procedure is happening. You don't want to be overreached into surgery because your body has to heal from a lot of stuff at the same time. Coagulation and all the stuff works a little bit differently when you're overreached. Nothing you want to your disadvantage. Surgery is a real thing. So I would say... Uh, surplus, small surplus now is fine, probably the best option. Uh, maintenance now is probably an equivalent option, roughly. Cutting now is probably not the greatest idea in the world, uh, but whichever one you choose, they're all, you know, very close to each other. I would say one week out at least, switch to maintenance and do your deload training. So when you come into surgery, you're very healed, very recovered. You can just rock through surgery, no problem. And then when you're, um, better or when you're post-surgery rather maybe not better yet uh, just be very patient and train only as much as the doctors say you can don't diet like crazy because and i know this is really difficult to wrap our heads around as we're all addicted to training uh, you can come back and like nothing ever happened and make the best gains of your life getting back old gains is like nothing's as easy to breathing you'll be back to square one with a bunch of stuff healed actually like maybe that little elbow tendonitis you never really looked at healed because you did four weeks you could train up the body it's a great really great thing 
So you could treat this as a real positive thing and not be like, damn it, I'm out of the gym for six months. Like, that's a real good thing. Uh, once, twice, maybe three or four times in your career, actually, over the course of 20 or 30 years of training, six months out of the gym may actually be like a net benefit. I know that sounds crazy. It's certainly not a net downside. Um, you know, you'll have bodybuilders tear up muscles like crazy, get into car accidents, do all this wild stuff, and you write them off. And then two years later, they're in the Olympia, their all-time best, and then have another productive six years after. So we tend to think that six months is just absolutely devastating, but it's really just not. So uh, hopefully the surgery goes really well. Hopefully you have new robot hips, and you can begin to take over the world shortly thereafter. Yeah, I think it's, uh, I really like, actually, I hadn't even thought of the fact that you don't want to go into surgery kind of overreached i think a lot of people would be like oh no i've got to use every single last second to be training at my absolute maximum before vacation sure because yeah. it's vacation before surgery mm, want to be kind of golden before surgery it's a serious surgery you know i had uh uh umbilical hernia repair once but the procedure lasts like 30 fucking minutes or something this whatever right but like when they go into your hip sockets and stuff like that yeah that's a thing you want to be at your maximum ability to recover from really really fatigued yeah and i think a lot of people think about dieting after these like when they're injured or something for some reason it's like i don't know if i can't progress in the gym i'm gonna it's fat phobia yeah all. and, and like you to... said go on go ahead sorry steve i was just gonna say you'd extend the time of the recovery process 100%. which is not what you want to do yeah and uh it's also like um it's a grasp for whatever control of your body composition you have left you say, I can't train anymore, but I'm, I'm going to diet so that I get leaner, so that I'm always impressing people. The best way to become very impressive during life in general is to have times where you push it really hard and then times where you really, really back off and take it easy and pretend that everything recover. They can't all be pushes because then you're going to be pushing backwards at some point. So it's okay to have a, a six months in your life where you're like eating plenty of protein and mostly healthy foods, have some cheat meals, and just fucking recovering from surgery. Because then when you come back, you're going to you see, you see this huge breath in and out. You're like, holy shit, I've just reset my lifting career by like five years. Amazing. Uh, I wish I had done that a few times. Yeah, I think it's people often ask me because I recovered from my accident like years and years ago. Uh, and I was months trying to recover through this. And like, oh, how did you get through it? And I think about it now and I can't even remember how hard it was because it's an afterthought. So I think it's one of those things in the time it feels terrible for a period of time. But afterwards, you'll be like, years down yeah. the line, you'll be like, oh, that happened. Yeah. And that's you saying that your accident was way more serious than surgery. I mean, my God. <laughs> right. Like yours was a giant question mark if you've ever recovered. Yeah, you know, hip labor from surgery is like pretty close to a guarantee that you'll recover. You just have to not fuck it up by doing anything yeah. stupid. Awesome. Cool. We get to the next question, which is from H-Man. And he has asked uh, a question on frequency periodization. When adding a new day for a body part, do you advocate reducing the volume of the previous days? For example, say in the first meso, you did chest twice a week and built up to 10 sets per session, 20 per week. When adding a new session, would you drop the sets so it was say eight sets per session, 24 a week, or would you just do fewer sets that third session, keeping the other two the same so it was 10 sets plus 10 sets plus four sets, so 24 sets? Yeah, good question. So, Steve, the way you and I train is we wouldn't build up to 10 and then just go into 10 in the next meso. We'd start from maybe four or five, build up to 10 per session with two sessions. And then if we added a third one, we'd actually just start from like maybe five or six normally, right? And then work 
back up to 11 or 12 or something if recovery allowed it. So you should still reset all of your volume landmarks back to NEV for training in the next meso. But now this meso presents you with a difference that there's an extra training session. So maybe instead of resetting to a slightly higher value, right, usually you would assume your NEV goes up a little bit with the similar exercises repping just same phase. In this case, maybe assume that because you're adding an extra session, you just go back to the same per session volumes you started the last meso with. So if you started with four sets of chest twice a week each time, and then meso with two times a week chest training, when you move to three, instead of starting with five or six each time, which would be rational if you did two again, just start with four again because it's a fine answer. So notice that's way lower than the 10 you ended at or the eight you ended at, and it gives you that breathing room and also that discovery room of how the new dynamics affect your stimulus and fatigue paradigms and the SRA stuff. So stimulus recovery adaptation curves. And, you, and, and to that end, a good answer is starting again at four sets, for example, same as you did before. An also equivalently good answer, at least, if not maybe a little better, is maybe starting a little lower, maybe like three, three or four. Why? Because anytime you introduce a higher frequency, the chance of you overdoing it is much higher than the chance of you underdoing it. Look, you're training three times a fucking week now. You're not going to underdo it. <laughs> like, it's very hard to do because, like, oh, I underdid my Wednesday, didn't feel like anything. Good good news, you got another session Friday. You got to fix that shit immediately. You can do, you know, three sets really didn't do anything. You got two days to wait until you can do four sets or five sets to fix it. So I would say airy even on the side of a little less, and you have a whole mesocycle to ramp it up. And, you, and if you have another meso after that, another three, then you really know your volume landmarks well. So I would start again just as low as you did for the 2x. Uh, or a little bit more. Yeah, I really like that. I think it it's a good reminder to people that they struggle with the idea of kind of ramping up, then coming resetting, and then ramping up again. And they kind of want to ramp up, ramp up, ramp up, and just kind of resetting everything back down to those minimum effective levels. People think the kind of that that's not progressive overload now, but it's kind of the concept of that kind of overload threshold or range that Brian totally. Miner talks about. Totally, yeah. It's like you know your minimum effective volume to your maximum recoverable can for your various you know beginners and intermediates span 10 sets per session or something or eight sets or six sets that means that that's all entirely productive and after a deload your minimum effective volume very likely goes down you're more sensitive to training I mean, you can test that and, and arrive at the real stupid conclusion that you failed if you do 10 sets you know twice a week for let's say quads at the end of a mesocycle of really getting used to five sets and all the way through eight and let's say 10 if you take a deload try 10 sets of quads again in the workouts steve you've done dumb shit like that for so have i like if, uh, i'm actually in a situation right now where i upped my load significantly on uh, like a hack squat, a lever squat machine because my uh, adductor is finally healing so well that i can use my whole leg not just the tippy toes of my quads and i i i, I was doing four sets of these lever squats last mezzo fresh mezzo after deload and I upped the weight significantly, so my true RIR is much lower. And I was like, let's do three. And after two sets, like the lactate wouldn't leave my quads. And I'm like, uh, I'm going to be an idiot, do one more. So I did three. And now I have a workout tomorrow for quads, which I just won't be healed for. So I have to modify it so it's extra light. I still do a lot of volume, get a good stimulus, but I won't be able to go as heavy just because I probably get hurt if I went heavy with basically peak knobs. What an idiot. Start lower, and you can always work your way back up. Uh, and you don't need to smash every single workout. You need to have periodic workouts every few months where you push the limits like crazy. Most workouts should just be pretty hard, and some can even be pretty easy and still get you great gains. That whole the, the idea that a range of work 
work out difficulties, produce decent results, and just the pattern should be over time to increase them, but periodically coming back. That escapes most people, and it escapes most people not because it's illogical, but because it violates our compulsion to try to do more. And it's not—it's nothing more than a compulsion. It's like a feeling you get, which isn't very reliable. Yeah, I've definitely done similar. I can—the most recent one I know I did a kind of a primer phase or resensitization maintenance phase. And I came into my first week of training and I had like three sets programmed in and like one set of this. And I did, I did two sets and I was already like, I knew I was smashed, but I continued to do my third set and do my program one set of the other quad movement. And I was, yeah, a week, I wasn't recovered after a week. So yeah. uh, that was a lesson learned. And that's something I, I love that you and James introduced ages ago was kind of this um, kind of in the kind of what's it called a uh, ghetto mev kind of uh, in yeah, terms yeah, of yeah. the pump and disruption and how for some clients i've people who kind of get it quite well i've introduced kind of in that first week i give them a range of sets so like if three sets nice. are done it great if four go to four but always edge yeah. towards the lower end because like you said you can always add yeah and the pump and disruption works so well because they predict soreness and, and damage so well like you know if you have an awesome chest pump and your pecs are starting to feel a little wiggly fucking stop what are you doing and that actually applies to every single workout you'll ever do what is the point of continuing on if you've got clearly a great stimulus that's going to give you doms for a few days but there's no more to do and say well i can do more like well dorian yates grew to be the biggest bodybuilder of his era from an average of 14 sets per week per body part like it's possible to grow huge doing very low volumes take it Take it. You don't want to be in a universe in which you have to do 30 sets to grow. The funny thing is, is who is in that you know, in that world? People with not so great genetics that are predominantly slow twitch muscle fibers. And people will say like, oh yeah, I can I can do you know 60 sets of chest and, and nothing short of 50 gets me sore. And I'm like, let me see. Don't bother showing me a chest because I can tell through your t-shirt you don't have one. And they're like, I know I, I'm struggling with it. And they'll say like, what well, should I just do lower volume? Is that maybe the answer? And I'm like, unfortunately, you know, most of the research and and theory says the answer is actually high volume for you. I'm sorry. The, the only answer to your question is struggle. That sucks. But if you're not in that group, why struggle like everyone else? I mean, can you imagine, you know, like doing three hard sets of chest and be like, oh, I got this crazy pump and my chest is broken. Uh, I should do more. Why? Why? You're the man. Just leave the gym and grow something else to train your biceps that never get sore a little bit. Yeah, it's, it's such a, a good point because I think a lot of people wear like uh, the number of sets they do as a badge of honor and it's almost, in a sense, the opposite. I always like to say to clients, maximizing your own individual MRV is a good thing because that shows you've got good recovery and all of this, but comparing like having the maximum MRV totally out there in the world sure. probably isn't a great thing for you because yeah. there's a lot of time involved. Even between muscles, um, I've been making uh, a sort of mental note whenever I talk to people about their training to try to collect this very informal data. But when I was a strength and conditioning coach, we sort of did this all the time. I've come to the realization that the correlation between a muscle's individual MEV and MRV and its relative growth proclivity to the other muscles of the body is very high and very negative. The people that, so Jared Feather will sometimes train calves and forearms with me. He never does more than two or three sets because he gets maximum pump and disruption after that. You've seen his calves and forearms. They're enormous. My, my forearms are actually stronger than Jared's. Like I can do more wrist curls with more weight. He doesn't have to. It just grow. And I have to do more weight and more and more reps and more sets. And for what? My forearms aren't as big. So you talk to the, the, the guys, people are the best. Let me make a prediction, Steve. Your biceps probably really responsive 
intensive to training. They just don't take like six sets per session. Let me guess, three sets of hard curls per session, your biceps are screaming at you. Is that a correct prediction? I feel it's literally my bash to this question. No, you haven't. I was literally thinking my biceps are a great example because I just did two sets today and I, I literally haven't moved these two sets the entire mesocycle because I do two sets of the oh. facing away double arm cable curls I've seen you doing as well. And I'm just like, I don't need a third set. <laughs> Well, I need five sets, you asshole. But that, but your biceps are a genetic gift, and like that's how it works. So when you have a muscle that doesn't need a lot to grow, this is not like, or doesn't need a lot to get disrupted. It's not like you're like, damn it, I wish I could do more. Like that is great. It's a great thing. Like just leave it be and train it only until it gets disrupted, and then stop. Yeah, perfect. Cool. We're on to the next question, which is from... Sorry, real quick. Oh, yeah. Sorry, real quick. I just have to throw this in there for completeness of thought because this is one of the only podcasts to get to really be complete. Um, um, a lot of the top guys will uh, do like uh, a little bit of a pyramid and then one top set for like three or four movements. And that's it. Like they basically have four or five working sets per session. If you average it all out per muscle group, one to two times a week. And some of us think like, how the hell do they grow with this kind of volume of drugs? Then we say drugs to recover from high volumes too. So that cancels itself out. The reason is guys who are super fast, which super genetically gifted, uh, no, of course they have to put in super hard work and lift heavier than the rest of us because they're so strong. They're the ones that are the most volume sensitive and they require the least volume. Guys like uh, J, uh, JP, George Peters, like, yeah, if your chest looks like that, with three sets of chests twice a week will be all you can handle. I have like pretty similar chest genetics as far as like being good. There's a, if, if I do three sets of incline barbell press to absolute failure, yeah, I can just do that twice a week and grow as much as I ever need to. My hamstrings are like that. I can do three sets of stiff legged ups and be sore for seven days. I, people ask me for hamstring tips. I'm like, hypothetically, my hamstrings grow. You've seen my hamstrings during life. They're kind of absurd. They just grow no matter what. They grow low volumes, high, whatever. It's just very easy to disrupt. But like, you know, my forearms, my biceps, I don't know. They just need more volume and they're just not that great. So it's one of those things where people, if you need any evidence that, that uh, more evidence that most responsive muscle groups and most responsive individuals tend to benefit from lower volumes and there's no reason to rush into high ones just look at some of the stuff the pros are doing and a lot of them just you like, really you grew off that like yeah and if they did any more they would be trashed and they would be oh. hey pascal here i just wanted to take the moment to talk about our membership site inside you'll find a thriving forum an extensive exercise library courses presentations and research reviews all I need you to do is hit the link in the description below and sign up. See you there. It's actually super interesting because I know, I think it was Andrew Chappelle and some others did a bit of research looking at some of the kind of pro natural bodybuilders and they're looking at like the average training split was a bro split uh, pretty much across the board. And when you think about, oh, does that mean the bro split's the best for everyone? It's like, no, 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 no. It's because potentially maybe they're the guys that are, they they just have such little volume tolerance and they need the extended recovery times. Yep. Maybe yep. they could train better, but who knows? It could be right. like but you're saying there. They're closer on the end of the spectrum to training better than, than training worse. They're not that wrong. They can be enhanced better by training maybe twice a week instead of once. But then if you train twice a week, they'd have to do a little bit less volume each time. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it comes back to the point of, what you and Eric have really, in terms of the, the set progression and all of that discussion, one of the big take-homes for me at least was how both of you are big on auto-regulation and how that's got to be a cornerstone of things. You can't just add more because you think more is better. It might be worse for you. <laughs> totally. 
when people ask like, what do you think of German volume training? I think 10 sets across the board is fucking stupid. It's fucking stupid. Like any number of sets across the board is fucking stupid. Absolutely. Cool. We get to the next question now. So that's from B me G and he has asked, what is the point of having a training partner? I know Mike and Jared, and I think you already actually spoke about this, which says some of this might not be quite right. He just said, I know Mike and Jared train together. So I was just wondering about the utility of having a training partner since I train alone. Theoretically, I would think that when it comes to hypertrophy, the same program would work differently for each individual. And therefore one program may not be optimal for the other individual. I know the scientific principles remain the same, but how can you be sure that you and Jared are creating the best program that you can for both of you? or any two workout partners, just using you guys as an example? Yeah, it's a great question. It's just Jared and I don't run the identical program. We're in a similar program where we train muscle groups on um, almost all the same days, but Jared will, so for example, uh, one of our push days, we split triceps and chest AMPM. Uh, another of our push days, Jared also does that because his MRV for chest and triceps is higher than mine. Uh, for me, it's so low that my second push day is chest triceps combined. It's the only thing I can do. And then I go and train a little bit more delts later in that PM than he does because his delt, delts are ridiculous and his MRV, MEV isn't as high, MRV isn't as high. So he doesn't need to train delts as much. So there are some, there are very, very particular differences in our programs that are specific to us. Sometimes we'll do the same muscle group, the exercises, he'll join me for one or two, I'll join him for one or two, but the other one or two exercises will be different because the SFRs are poor. I, for example, for a long time, I've done assisted pull-ups for this mezzo and I just switched to pull-downs. And Jared just didn't do them with me because for that assisted pull-up machine, he's just too tall for the machine. He doesn't get the full stretch and or the peak contraction, depending where he's put his feet. So he just didn't do that. He just did regular pull-ups or extra pull-downs or something like that. So there's absolutely, and, and you know, we don't lift the same weights. Like we're all, almost, almost always we're lifting different weights, um, but we hang out together while we lift, you know, if the machines are close and we can motivate each other um, and just bullshit. The number one utility of training partners is it's more fun because they're your friend. Uh, but also you can, you can get under each other's skin a little bit. And, you know, it, we, um, one good thing is making sure RIRs is where it's supposed to be. So if someone's pushing you too hard in the first week, just do this and they get, they rack the bar or during the final weeks, if they're not pushing significantly, you can, you could do that. Like, you know, Jared will, will uh, readily admit that I help him push himself on legs or sometimes he would quit a little early. And uh, I can totally understand that sentiment. Uh, when I was recovering from my adductor injury, now that I'm like pretty close to fully recovered or, or on my way there, Jared's like, dude, you should be doing more of this. Put more weight on the bar. What RIR is this? I'm like, You're right. So I put more weight on the bar and it worked really well. So it's really good for a kind of honest feedback. Um, you definitely don't want a yes man training just like oh yeah everything looks good and also like great great technical critique you know they can say hey like you're swinging a little too much on those back rows what's going on um and just their presence and the fact that you know they care about your technique can make you not swing because you want to be like okay i'm the training partner here i'm going to make sure that they are okay with the set as, as long as i'm okay with the set as well yeah it's similar to i think you've spoken about kind of thinking about every set as if you're recording it for instagram or something but you've got a training partner, so it's almost that same sort of like surveillance over your set. <laughs> totally, 100%. I, I, out of interest, I think one of the things people, I, I think the points you said there are what I would see as the same benefit to a training partner, which I think would be fantastic. Um, some people use training partners to like assist reps quite frequently. That's one thing I see. And I think some people like to say that that's potentially like a real benefit. So like maybe where you'd fail, they assist that portion so you can then complete. Do you think that, 
kind of that extra stimulus there that could potentially be anything? Is that anything you'd, you've ever used or tried? Well, it's nothing I use in practice, uh, but I've, tr I've tried it before when I was younger. Um, the thing about force reps is uh, it has a potential advantage of pushing you to a level of relative effort beyond something you can do yourself and maybe has some hypertrophy benefits. The downsides are the stimulus to fatigue ratio really does, it's not that great because your psychological effort is massive at that point. It's maybe not worth it. Um, and also another problem was the tracking problem of like, well, how many reps did you do? How much of a stimulus was that? How much were they helping? If it's they help you all the time, then you just have no idea if you're getting much stronger or how much stronger. And you can't really evaluate the effectiveness of programs at some point. So um, I would stay mostly away from four straps, even if I recommended them. But I think on a final week of just spilling it all out, then some four straps are, are pretty cool if your training partner's apt. Uh, I, I will say that uh, selfishly, both Jared and I, and when Charlie and I are training, Charlie and Jared and I, we're not going to do four straps for each other because, like, we're resting for our next set. Well, fuck yourself. Do your own goddamn reps. I'm resting for this, you know, chest press machine between your sets of chest press. I'm not going to fucking do rows for you. Like, that's what the fucking snack is for. Put a drops in it. And, and what I always uh, say is uh, to be a real, not, I was going to say straw man, um, to really, to really red team, you know, basically the highest critique possible of four straps is like, why don't you just go to failure, rack the bar, rest a little bit drop the weight or not and just do a couple more reps like there's you should always do another set and it's really tough to argue against just another set instead of modifying it with four straps so yeah i i see that and the thing i always think about is i've had people ask and clients ask if they can do kind of metabolite work or kind of um, some of these intensifiers in the final week of a mesocycle and i worry at least at the kind of front end of that microcycle that extra stimulus and novelty that they're going to do is going to disrupt the second half of the microcycle. Totally. Maybe like the last session, I could see it yes. being less detrimental, but the rest. Last session of each muscle group for that yeah. week. That's a really good point, Steve. Yeah, like Thursday, Friday, Saturday, you go all in and then and then it's over. But if Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, you go all in, you're Thursday, Friday, Saturday, you're like, good luck. Yeah, 100%. Stick to the plan. Yeah, I, I, I like that. Cool. Uh, the next question is from Matt Van, and he has asked a few questions, actually. I'll ask just the first one. He said, where would Mike put periodizing training in his hierarchy of importance in regards to programming for hypertrophy? Maybe compare it to other tools such as just generally training, nutrition, lifestyle, kind of sleep, meal frequency, training frequency, calorie intake, refeeds, diet breaks, that sort of thing. Yeah. You can ask another question of his, Steve, if you'd like, because we literally have a video on the RP YouTube that was out like a week ago called, Is Periodization Important? Uh, it just answers this question in like 30 minutes, way better than I could answer it on here. The super quick preview is it's dead last in the hierarchy. It's just not that important. If you want to get your absolute best, it's super important uh, because everything is, but no, it's not more important than any of those things. It's a very minor thing. As long as you're progressing and taking breaks every now and again, and <clears throat> eating well and training hard, then that's what's really important. So that's the answer. Do you maybe want to ask another of his questions? Because Sure, that's great. Yeah, I, I mean, I know I've said it before, but you're putting out some great content over on there. And like, Thanks, like, man. The fact that's all free is just like mind blown for a lot of people. I think it's it's invaluable. So if people want to, they better be checking that out if they're listening to this. So the second question is, uh, how does someone know when they should switch to a more periodized hypertrophy program? And he gave some background. He said, just a small background of where I'm coming from. I'm coached by Menno uh, from a beginner to advanced uh, to give Mike an idea of the level of periodization I've been exposed to slash people who train like Menno, which is mostly static RPE, high frequency, ad reps uh, slash weight, 
daily undulating periodization, among other progression schemes. I have to still do beat my logbook. It just takes longer. Maybe I have some great gains on the, t I'm leaving some great gains on the table by not periodizing as much. He says, bracket wishful thinking. Very wishful. Look, if Menno's your coach, you're in some of the best hands in the world. That is periodization. Uh, and, you know, maybe there's some phase potentiation you could do, like a low volume maintenance phase or experiment with slightly lower frequencies and much lower volumes to see if maybe you're missing some growth there. And maybe your stimulus to fatigue ratio there could be better. Um, but other than those tiny little things, it seems like you're doing everything right already. You are periodizing. Um, because periodization has multiple levels. Phase potentiation is not the only part of periodization. Phase potentiation body is a very, very minor thing as long as your fatigue is being controlled, which I know with Meadow it is. So, um, to be honest, uh, you know, the, the answer to your question, when are you ready for more periodization, is, uh, first of all, any time uh, more is fine, because more detail is fine. But usually, like, when, you know, you've reached a plateau or a great rate of growth that you're not super comfortable with and you'd like to pay a little bit more attention to detail um, to enhance your abilities, that's it. You know, like, it's kind of like um, maybe you they have a a group of recipes in your rotation you cook for your family and they really like them and you know they, they, they you cook something uh, like a mac and cheese dish casserole and they're like oh you know, usually they're like mom this is great and they're like oh this is good and you don't tell them you go back oh, yeah, i like i get more into the cooking details here i gotta start checking oven temperatures more precisely i gotta start weighing out the salt while i was doing a pinch i gotta get you know, I got to look up recipes because like, I'm not comfortable with like, oh, it was fine. Right. So when your training goes from great to like, that's oh, okay. It's time to look at a periodization, just like if you're cooking and you love cooking, uh, you know, maybe you're not so satisfied with people saying your food is okay uh, or just good. You want great. And, and, and you know, you could want great up front. You could start just really before you ever make a mac and cheese casserole for your family, you could study all of the recipes and make the perfect one up front. Nothing wrong with that just might be a psychologically a bit too much overload. You're like, I don't even know how the hell I cook for my family. I'm a fucking food scientist at this point. You got thermometers and shit in the food. But at some point, you know, if it really matters to you how great the food is, you're going to have to take your shit to the to the upper extreme, which is what do you think professional chefs do, right? And what do you think professional bodybuilders do? They hire coaches that take a look at every single factor, uh, you know, down to all their specific foods that they eat and try to do the best job possible. So if you need slash want it, it's there for you. Cool. And I guess uh, I imagine in that video, I don't think I've, I've watched it yet. Do you go into an example of that for hypertrophy, like the phase potentiation model? Man, no clue, Steve. I recorded that video fucking months ago. <laughs> I imagine <laughs> you probably do. I just feel we like... We record well in advance. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so no worries. Um, let's go into the next question then from Michael K. And he's asked, uh, starting training over again, uh, sorry, if you were starting training again, what would you do differently? Uh, what would you have left out? What would you have definitely done again? So I'll make the philosophical grand point first, and then I'll make the actual answer. It's, it's a very uh, difficult to predict how things would go if you quote unquote did them better. Um, there may be things that I did, I, I think in retrospect wrong, but actually built a foundation of what I ended up getting right. For example, lots of really heavy training might have given me something special as far as muscle size that, and a predisposition for more size that maybe I just never had, had I not gone as heavy. Um, and it's, so it's very difficult to think back and be like, oh, this is what the problem was. Uh, we don't have that kind of certainty, unfortunately. Uh, so it's just, uh, and also like, you know, for your own sake, don't look back too much just, just to learn, not to lament that you didn't do things properly. Um, the, the biggest thing I would do 
is not chronically exceed my MRV for my very volume sensitive muscle groups like my chest and my triceps because I permanently disabled those muscle groups. Uh, my chest is now much better. I don't think it's 100%. My triceps are better. They're not 100%. Um, and uh, I had uh, was doing it to my quads, but just for short enough time to recognize the symptoms of long-term overtraining, and I backed off, and they healed completely. Um, TLDR, but Nick Shaw and I were doing similar things, and his quads never healed completely. They have the same problem that my chest and triceps do. Whenever he goes too hard on them, they have these, these little muscle pulls. Um, we can't, this not, that medicine is not up to standard yet to explain that, but it's basically like a fundamental breakdown of how the tissue heals and there's always going to be scarring to a certain extent of being liable to more injury. So I certainly would have just not crushed it too hard. I would have followed, you know, if you're getting a good pump, if you're getting a good decent soreness that heals in a few days, not seven, then you're doing well. And it's just a matter of going slow. Um, I would have proper use proper technique from day one um i would have taken more active rest breaks and i would have just done everything i do now more from day one uh and less ego lifting probably less lifting for strength although again you know like lifting for strength is fun it was something i was doing at the time i don't know how that would have affected my passion uh, but basically like, you know if, if i end up having a son Sure as hell not going to tell him to just train like a pure bodybuilder and pure pure does matter from day one. He should probably just hate it, hate me, hate himself, and then quit and go start an emo gang, you know, which would be a disaster. Uh, hate you, dad. <laughs> uh, but like, so, you know, who knows? But yeah, fundamentally, I would have probably just uh, stayed within my limits more and done less stupid ego bullshit. Uh, also, from a training or diet perspective, I would have never gotten as heavy and fat as I did uh, as a natural. That was real stupid. I got up to 270 drug-free, strong, big, but real fat, and it probably hurt my health, definitely hurt my aesthetics because now I have per permanent loose skin, um, and not a ton, but just enough to be like, what the fuck? And it gained me pretty much nothing as far as – it was also, it also wasn't fun. So it was, you got to eat all that food. Like I was stuffing myself for like years on end, uh, throwing up at night, crazy shit to do that. Uh, because of, you know, male tendency for single-minded goals. I just had 270 in my head, and that was the number that I was going to hit. So I would have done uh, that a little bit differently, for sure. Oh, and uh, sorry, on the supplement front, I would have just found Broderick Chavez early and hired his dumbass for 10 years before. I think uh, the 270, uh, a lot of the things you said there are very similar to my thoughts and like the same things, like technique is a huge one. I think a lot of people would agree with that and not pushing too much, but the just the 270 as a, a natural full stop is impressive, let alone you're like five, six, five, seven. Five, six. You don't five, got six. any slack. You know, Birdo, Birdo's been up to like 240 or something like that too. And he says the same thing about it as I do. He's like, nah. Helms, I think, has been up to like 240 or something. He's a lot taller, but that's still a lot. And he was like, nah, I just don't really know what happened between like 220 and 240. I just don't think much happened. Uh, and for me, between like 220 and 270, I don't think much happened. Uh, it would have been better, better off staying smaller longer. Uh, calling, calling my natty gains at 210 pounds and then switching to the dark side. And it would have been all great. And it's been all great, but it would have been all great without the excess skin and all this other crap. Hi guys, Steve here. Just wanted to take a moment of your time to remind you of our online coaching service. At Revive Stronger, we pride ourselves on providing personalized service that will take your physique and knowledge to the next level. If you're interested, check the description and sign up. 
yeah, the eat, I can't even imagine I'm complaining and struggling eating like <laughs> not even pushing over much over 200 pounds. So I can't imagine what it must have been like to actually get to 270. That must be that. Heaven and earth. Yeah. So at least I guess in some ways it's probably d- developed some sort of uh, rigidity and kind of determination that now you can define dieting more of a dorsal sure. in some, in some yeah. way. At least the discovery of that, like uh, when I um, hear people say, I can't eat enough to grow. There's a certain like Thomas Sowell level of like expressionless sarcasm that I apply to it, which is funny at least. And if, if, if no one caught the reference, if you look up the economist Thomas Sowell during various many of his interviews or debates, when the other person or the interview is asking a question that's so far beneath his intellectual capacity, he sits there like this. And they're stopped and they're like, what did I get wrong? And he's like, well, and he tries to be real charitable or he just attacks the shit out of him. It's just funny. When someone, someone tells me like, oh man, getting up to 170 is so hard. I'm just like, "Eh, so anyway, let me tell you how it's not that as hard as you think. Uh, So, but you know, people have individual struggles. Some people have, you know, I can eat. Um, I can't eat a lot of one sitting, which our YouTube videos and food challenges would uh, completely illustrate. But I can, like if I have a maximum meal of as much sushi as I can possibly eat, I can three hours later eat basically the same amount of food and again and again and again. And that's just genetic gift. Like my dad can eat a lot if he wants. He can eat a little if he wants. I got that from him. Some people like it's very easy to judge people uh, having different genetics. They like do the scoffing, you know. Oh, can't I can't believe like can't believe you can't do this. Well, how much are you taking for granted? Mm-hmm. You know, like. I'm taking that for granted that I can eat or at least train myself to be able to eat over time. Trainability is part genetic. So I don't have the audacity. Yeah, I do the Thomas Sowell thing of like, oh, you can't eat 170, shut up. But in my truest and most logical sort of empathic sense or best self, I'm like, you know, I understand it. It could be very hard for you. You could have a tiny little stomach. Your gut hormones could just be like, you know, up the wazoo. If you ever think, how is it that people, because, you know, sometimes we're like, so I'm, I'm uh, dieting super hard right now. Leanest I've ever been, and all this crazy shit. So I'm just like every night, I literally just dream about food, right? Um, but I know intellectually what it's like to not be able to eat. Think of if you've forgotten it for some reason, and you're listening to this, you're like, really? How could you not eat? Have you ever had food poison? Okay, think of that sensation. Like I remember, I had food poisoning in the Dominican Republic, and I was watching TV just to pass the time because I was sitting about half dead, and like a cheeseburger commercial came on the TV. And I couldn't fast enough click it off because I was going to throw up looking at it. Like you take that and multiply it by half, right? And that's how you feel all the time when you really push in the calories. And you know that sensation, Steve. When someone's like, pizza tonight, you're like, yeah. don't say that. Don't say that word. I just ate. I can't fucking do this. And then two hours later, you're like, finally, you'll be like, okay, food doesn't make me want to throw up completely. And someone's like, here's your next meal. And you're like, are you fucking serious? Imagine genetically your gut hormone. That's all gut hormones. That's all hormones, period. Because the only thing that happens when you have food poisoning is your hormones go, you're being poisoned. Flip. And the leptin and ghrelin go like that. And peptide YY goes like that. And your brain's like, fuck, stop eating. Like you could naturally just have these hormone levels set real high anyway. So someone's like, just eat. And you're like, don't understand. Like I I can't. Now, of course, I can't sometimes means it's incredibly difficult, but yeah. I can. But it just have some reverence for it. some people are coming from a different uh, different ability. And by the way, just to be intellectually complete, it could very well be that actually it's not that hard for them, but they have genetically low willpower. <laughs> yeah. So then yeah, I guess you can make fun of them, but maybe not because it's all genetic too. So, you know. yeah. 
No, I like that. Um, and actually, out of interest, Mike, where do you obviously you just said you're your leanest leanest yet? Um, do you have? I think we've maybe discussed it before. The, do you know how much longer you've got to diet? Uh, from the recording of this podcast, roughly eight and a half weeks until I'm like either something bad happens or I try to compete in a show. So, see. Awesome. Yeah, I yeah. guess, I don't know, it, it shows, I don't know what the show, I think it's different, depends on the state and the kind of political <laughs> like agenda. It really does, which is why I'm like just dieting to get super lean. And once I'm super lean, I'm like, I, uh, I have I have some glute details now from not just from the side. I always have glute details. I have now some glute details from the back, and my back is doing weird shit. So I'm like at a really cool level. Um, I'm actually going to get a DEXA scan in about an hour and a half here. Nice. Uh, yeah, just for shits and giggles. It's super cheap in Las Vegas. It's just down the streets. So we're like, fuck, I'm get scan. But you know, who knows what that's going to say? But like, you know, depending on that, like I'm, you know, probably pretty lean. And then I'm going to get leaner. And then when I'm there, like, hopefully the situation still allows, like, I have a show picked out tent very tentatively, but nowadays in the, in these temporary Corona times, like, you know, you got to be like, well, I'm going to get lean and be ready and yeah. see if it happens. I know we haven't probably got time for another question, so I'm going to just continue. We have time for one more. One Steve. more. Okay. Let's get to the yeah, next but question. You can I'll... continue and then we can do one more depending on how long our question is. What were uh, you going to say? I'll get to the, I'll just get to the question. Sorry. Okay. I was just going to go down um, a rabbit hole probably. So uh, the next question is from uh, Dean Durney and he has asked, does Mike utilize subjective measures to determine body fat percentage, such as looking in the mirror and making an intelligent guess? This is actually really pertinent considering you just said you're getting a DEXA. Uh, guess over objective measures such as calipers. If so, does he have any loose descriptors slash visual cues for specific body fat percentages? For example, 10% equal well-defined abs, 15% top four abs, etc. Question. I use all of them. I use everything has to be used in combination. And I wouldn't say over and above. Um, this is very complicated by being in the, in the dark side of things with pharmaceuticals because sometimes they do really weird shit to your body water and a really weird shit to your body weight where that just kind of goes out the window. Because um, you'll see guys prepping for a show. They start prep at 230 pounds and they step on stage at 225. Like, what the fuck? You lost five pounds, but lost seemingly 8% body fat. Well, that's a lot of body water movements on it and so forth. Um, skin, skin calipers are not immune to body water fluctuations. They actually do count body water, at least in part, in their measurements. So sometimes your skin fold can go down almost not at all. You gain a shitload of body water, but you've lost like four pounds of fat. You just have no idea. Body water, again, is a problem for the, the visual because the stuff looks a little different, but you still it's hard to tell water and fat apart. Like So for example... Um, in the afternoons, I, you know, eating plenty of fiber, drinking water and having plenty of salt throughout the day. Like if I just relax my midsection and turn around, like it looks like I have love handles and like I have a gut and it's blurry. There's no abs. And, and you would think like, holy fuck, did you have 20% body fat? Jared and I were having this conversation yesterday, actually, when I was practicing posing at that exact look. But then Jared was like, I'm like, Jared, what would I look like? About 20%? He's like, yeah, you could say that, but not to the trained eye. He's like, you know, I can tell you don't actually have 20% fat. I'm like, how? He's like, you have veins in your abs, you dumb motherfucker. When you're relaxed, I'm like, right, okay. So like sometimes veins still stick out, even if you're watery, but they don't stick out when you're fat, okay? So definitely uh, a huge, like multiply branching vein 
the middle of my abs. Like you can only be so fat with ab veins, full stop, right? So that transitions to, so first of all, using all of those and being intelligent. And second of all, just applying a caloric deficit and a rate of exercise, you know, works so that it's okay if stuff not changing day to day and sometimes even week to week, you know that when you raise the carbs, drop the salt, reduce fatigue, shit flushes out and change overnight and like, holy fuck, I look amazing. So there's this faith in thermodynamics. If you're going to put your faith in something, thermodynamics is real good to put your faith in. Uh, hey, Jared, can I flip the camera real quick or no? Do you guys want to check out what living with Jared Mother's life? What's he doing? Is he asleep on the floor? He's, oh. he's about to do posing practice in the posing <laughs> corner. Good God. Hello, Steve. All right, man. <laughs> so anyway, uh, that's not uh, that's not an equivocal body fat percentage he's getting for being there. But uh, as far as like judging on objective percent and percent fat, um, we got to remember that like for physique purposes, it doesn't matter where your percent is because the look is the only thing that matters, right? Like if you tell Dexter Jackson he's actually 6% fat, he's going to be like, word up, <laughs> you know? And if you, you know, if you, I've had body water issues so bad before that I've dexed at 8%, but I look like total shit. Like who gives a fuck what I'm dexing at? I have things to resolve at the very least. And maybe that doesn't mean more hypochloric dieting, maybe it means other manipulations, but, but at least you got to, you know, work on some stuff. Or for example, you're very lean. Uh, your abs are super crisp, your chest is strided, but your glutes aren't in. And you know, judges nowadays, they look at glutes, man, they just do. So like, yeah, you say, oh, but I'm 5% body fat. Like, well, it looks like you need to get to three and a half in order to really show off your best package. And some, some people skate by with uh, sharp glutes. And even though their lower back might not be that tight, but to be honest, judges don't really look at your lower back nearly as much as they look at your glutes. So there's a consideration for competition, but for non-competition, um, Again, you're really going for the look. So the correlating to what exact body fat percent is of limited value. It is a value. But I would say for the, for the average male, average, because again, these things are, are different based on your genetics. For example, Jared Feather and Nick Shaw both have a full visible six-pack into the high teens and low 20s in body fat percentage. My shit goes away after 12 or some shit like that, right? So it's different. It's different. But for most folks... If you can see some abs, you're probably under 20% fat, but not much. If you can get a decent outline of a six-pack, you're probably between 10 and 15% fat. If you have a crisp, crisp six-pack, you're in that 10% range. Six-pack with beginnings of striations in the serratus muscles and veins in your lower abs are in the below 10% for sure in most cases range. And then straight freaky is in the 5 and below, which is, there's another 1% or 2% you could ever lose physiologically there. So so there's kind of a, a general roadmap, I think. Yeah. I, in my experience, that's really spot on as well. Uh, and I think people get really caught up in the percentage numbers, typically because I think people hear like, you should land within 10 to 15% as a male to mass. And they're like, how do I know what percent I am? It's just yeah. like... I uh, don't know, just through that visual representation, you literally just stand out there as, as far as they ever need to think about it. Totally. Cool. So I think we're up to 45 minutes, so I don't want to take any more of your time. Is your alarm there, just there went off? my alarm. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Cool. Uh, thank you so much, Mike. We'll have to schedule another one of these because we've got a bunch more questions to get through and that was a lot of fun. So I know our listeners really enjoy these, so they'd be disappointed this was only 45 minutes. But uh, yeah, if there's anything you've got going on, apart from obviously the RP YouTube channel, is there anything else to plug? I'm going to get, I'm going to regret this. The Scientific Principles of Hypertrophy Training has been has finished its uh, references um, and it's uh, in its final editing process now. So it should be out within the next two months. Amazing. Um, uh, Christmas. So it, 
yeah, 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 Christmas. So uh, almost certainly guarantee it's going to be out by Christmas. Um, and it's going to be awesome. Milo Wolf, uh, I'm sure you know who that is. He's the guy who's doing the references. He's excellent. Uh, he's actually just starting a PhD program in sports science. And he, uh, he, he, he actually, you know, in order to do the references, he read the book um, and he sent me a very nice message. And he's super sharp and really knows the stuff. And he's like, man, you really know a lot of stuff, you know, your, your, your comprehension of the literature is pretty deep. And I'm like, thanks, man. I sure fucking hope it is. And you write a goddamn book about the shit. So, um, so it was, it was good. I think it's going to be a good book. So that's coming out, but then yeah, RP, Renaissance Periodization, YouTube. I mean, we're putting all the shit out. So, so get ready. I think it was back in 2015 when you first came over for your seminar with uh james people were asking for a book then and you were like i don't know enough yet so it's 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 been a long process so uh, i know the audience are very excited to hear that indeed as as well as i am so thank you mike and uh we'll talk soon take care guys So I'm Steve Hall, founder of Revive Stronger and a coach of Revive Stronger. My name is Pascal Floor. I'm the co-owner of Revive Stronger and also a coach, of course. Revive Stronger has probably been going solidly for three years, probably roughly about three years. Revive Stronger, to me, it is becoming kind of my child, my foster child. It's the gathering and getting together of like-minded people. We've been expanding the coaching team, which is helping us help more people. Uh, but each coach can only help a certain number of people. Right now, it's all over the place. We have YouTube, we have Facebook, we have Instagram, but there isn't that community aspect behind that. And so the next step for us is developing a membership site. So basically, we want to create a family and a community that is then benefiting from another. A really cool community for people within our little niche is going to be a website. They will get early access to our podcast. You can access us, ask us questions, the community aspect. We have a forum there. You can ask questions, but also you can you can lock your journey. There's also going to be courses on there, courses, presentations on different topics, discount of past seminar footage. We will log our journey as well. We'll start vlogging. We're going to have documentaries, our entire athletic journey. Furthermore, they get access to an exercise video library. The exercises that we love for hypertrophy and maximizing hypertrophy, we're going to go through those in depth, telling you how to execute them. We kept them concise and also mobile friendly so that you can watch them in between your sets. I'm super excited to grow this community. The amount of value that we're going to be delivering is huge. And I'd love you to be part of it. You will get so much out of that. I'll see you inside.